lesson. Just at the start of this new year, we have some new things happening. I want to make sure you're aware of them. So first off, I want to take this opportunity to remind you about Charge Weekend. I know uh, Brother Stan mentioned this already, but be sure you're aware that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of this upcoming weekend is Charge. And we've go- we're going to have sessions every evening, Friday and Saturday at 7. And of course, on Sunday, we'll have the combined Bible class in here, followed by worship, the fellowship meal, and a 1 p.m. worship. Again, no 6 p.m. worship next Sunday. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't stuck around for our fellowship meal in a while, I want to encourage you to do so. We have a great time of fellowship downstairs, and and you have this opportunity to get to know brothers and sisters in Christ that you may not ever interact with because you sit on the other side of the auditorium than them. I mean, we've all got our assigned seats, right? So it's a great opportunity for fellowship. There's always good food. We always have uh, catered meats. Uh, Typically, it's uh, fried chicken, and I love fried chicken. And I'll tell you, I've been working on this audience and encouraging them to make things that I want. So surely you want them too. Don't forget the deviled eggs. Don't forget the deviled eggs. We always need plenty of deviled eggs. Just saying. Now, I want you to remember Charge Weekend, but I also want to draw your attention to the tract racks that appear out in our lobby. This is an overlooked asset of this congregation. For a long time, we've had volunteers overseeing this. I want to give uh, thanks to Phil Allen, and I'm certain there are others who have taken the time to make sure these are filled. And we've put a new uh, emphasis on this in the the recent, uh, recent months. We're going to make sure that the material in these tract racks revolve more frequently so that if something's not getting pulled for a while, we don't want it to just be stuck there and never get taken. But also, if you pay attention to the rack on the right side of the screen, it's the rack that is situated between two windows. It's actually not brochures. They are single cards, front and back, with factual biblical information. They can serve as excellent bookmarks, if you would like, but they are just fact tracks, if you will. And if you want a card that lets you know all the kings of Judah and all the kings of Israel, guess what? There's one of those there. If you want a card that will outline the armor of God for you or the Beatitudes, that's all these are. They're just little sheets of fact. Uh, So I want to draw your attention to that because they might be useful to you personally, or you might know someone who could benefit from these. Please uh, don't forget that we have this material out in the lobby. Additionally, I want to remind you that starting next Sunday, our bulletin articles are going to have a little nuance to them. We will still be writing articles as always, although I will tell you this year all of our articles are going to center on Jesus in some capacity. And included in that article will be a series of discussion prompts three to five statements or questions, and these are part of what we call our at-home devotional. We want to encourage you to use these prompts to ignite a discussion with your family or to have a personal devotional time during the week. We're providing you a small little guide to help you implement at a personal level or a family level a weekly devotional. Be sure to check that out, and be sure to set aside time to utilize it. Make time for yourself or make time for your family to have a weekly devotional. And finally, I want to let you know that beginning today, Minku is launching a Korean-speaking worship service. It will take place at 11 o'clock 
in the uh, Annex 2 auditorium. It's an effort to better engage the Korean community around us. And just want to let you know that that's happening. It doesn't really affect you or I, it, but it's worth knowing. Now, that does not mean our Korean brothers and sisters won't be worshiping with us. Some of them will continue to worship with us. Some will go to that service. Uh, but most importantly, you won't see Mingu in here uh, translating in the booth anymore. He's going to be focused on preparing and conducting that worship service. So we want to make you aware of that. And with those announcements, I want to start off with a word of prayer because there's a lot going on at the Buford Church of Christ in 2024. So will you bow with me for a word of prayer? Lord God in heaven, we come before you today uh, honored to be in your presence and honored to worship you. And right now we want to lift up this congregation as there are many efforts that we're implementing in this new year to better reach our community, to better grow our own faith, and we want to ask for your blessings upon them. We have Charge Weekend coming up this weekend, and we ask for your blessings on our speaker, Chuck Monin, and, and be with him as he travels here. Uh, may, he, may he have safe travel, but also bless him as he communicates these messages about the church this weekend. And help us, Lord, help us to prioritize the opportunity we have to, to grow in our knowledge of your word and your will and our understanding of your church in this unique opportunity. And Lord, may Charge Weekend be blessed. May it challenge us and help us to grow. And Lord, we ask that you uh, be with our efforts to implement home devotionals, whether on the personal level or on the family level. And, and may these efforts produce growth within our own personal lives in our own, uh, and in our families. And Lord, may you bless the Korean speaking service. May you be with Mingu as he oversees that and, and, and coordinates that. And may it help draw uh, people from the community to, to, to this opportunity to study your word and to worship you. May you bless that endeavor. And Lord, as your people gathered here at this congregation, this particular outpost of your kingdom, help us, Lord, to fulfill your will in all things and help us to represent you to the best of our ability. Lord, we love you. And it is through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we offer this prayer. Amen. Now, since Thanksgiving, we've been engaged in an on-and-off study uh, uh, called Church Words. And in this series, we have been examining words that are part of our church culture, our church vocabulary, but they don't necessarily make their way into our everyday conversations. And it's been our objective to first understand these words so that we can dispel any incorrect theology or doctrine, but also to understand these words so that we can have the ability to communicate their meaning to those who may not have heard them before. And today we're going to continue that series, but we're not going to look at a word that is unfamiliar. We're going to look at a word that is very familiar. In fact, we're going to be studying a word that is well known but often misunderstood or misapplied across Christianity. And it reminds me of the fact that it's very easy for us to confuse words, to misunderstand words. Like this mother who shared this story on social media about her child. She said, my toddler was about to hit her head on a bar at the playground, so I told her to duck. She quacked at me and then hit her head. Or this... This child, this uh, individual reminiscing of his childhood when he went to the doctor and he said, as a kid, I remember going to the doctor and he said to me, how's your stool? I patiently told him we had chairs and they were all fine. 
Or even this restaurant patron who said, I ordered my entree and the waiter asked if I wanted super salad. I said, yes. He said, super salad? Yes. He then asked salad or soup. See, it's very easy for us to misunderstand words. It's very easy for us to confuse words. It's very easy for us to assume we know what something means, but find out later we're completely wrong. That's why today we're going to study the word baptism. Needless to say, this is a prominent church word with which the vast majority of us are familiar. I mean, this is a prominent word in Scripture. The Greek verb baptize in all of its forms appears 77 times over the course of 64 verses in the New Testament. And the Greek noun baptism appears 19 times in 19 verses, also all of which are in the New Testament. And you may be sitting here thinking, and rightfully so, why do we need to study this word? We're part of the restoration movement. We're part of the body of believers that applies baptism correctly. So why do we need to talk about this? Well, like I said, the vast majority of you know this word. The vast majority of you have fulfilled this word. So there's probably not much you're going to hear from me today that's new information to you. But maybe, just maybe in the course of this lesson, you discover a better way to communicate it to those who need to hear it. But there also are going to be some people listening today or possibly tomorrow or possibly a year from now to this lesson that have a misunderstanding about baptism, that, they, that are not familiar with what it really means or what it really entails. And this lesson may expose them to some biblical truths with some biblical truths with which they are unfamiliar. And of course, there are still others that may have never heard about baptism. And this might be the first time they ever have heard an explanation of what it is and why one needs to do it. And so this morning, this is our word. And we're just going to address this word by asking some questions of it. Why is baptism important? It's quite simple. Baptism is important because it's associated with salvation. Peter compared baptism to the water that saved Noah and said this in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21. He says, baptism now saves you. Paul compared baptism to circumcision under Mosaic law and indicated that being buried with Christ in baptism results in being forgiven of all your sins in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. But no one made the relationship between baptism and salvation more clear than Jesus, who said this in Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. There's a clear connection in the New Testament between salvation and baptism. In fact, baptism is so closely connected to salvation that every conversion in the book of Acts includes baptism. When Peter finished delivering the first evangelistic sermon, the audience that heard his message asked, What shall we do in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37? He responded in the following verses by saying, Repent 
and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And according to verse 41, which I failed to put on the screen, according to verse 41 of that chapter, those who received his word were baptized. When the Samaritans heard Philip's sermon in Acts chapter 8, verse 12 tells us that they believed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized. Later in that chapter, when the eunuch learned about Jesus from Philip, he asked, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? The next thing we read is about them going down into the water where Philip baptized the eunuch. When Ananias visited Saul after Saul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he asked, why do you wait Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. And according to Acts chapter 9 and verse 18, Saul rose and was baptized. When God showed Peter that the Gentiles would be accepted into the church by miraculously gifting Cornelius and his family via the Holy Spirit, Peter said this in Acts chapter 10 verse 47 and 48. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he then commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And when the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, she was baptized in Acts chapter 16, verse 14 and 15. And when a prison guard asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? They told him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And according to Acts chapter 16 and verse 33, he was baptized at once. When the gospel reached Corinth, many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized, according to Acts chapter 18 and verse 8. And when Paul met some disciples in Ephesus who were baptized by John, he taught them about Christ. And as a result, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, according to Acts chapter 19 and verse 5. We just ran through a lot of references. And I did so to show that in Scripture it is evident that baptism is prominently mentioned and associated with sal in association with salvation. But that leads to our next question. If baptism is closely associated with salvation, what is its role in salvation? Is baptism what saves us? No. Paul made it very clear in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 that it is God's grace that saves us. Because he said, by grace you have been saved through faith. Therefore it must be affirmed that we are saved by God's grace. If God did not extend grace to us, then salvation would be impossible from the get-go. So if grace is what saves us, then why is it necessary for anyone to be baptized? You need to understand the reason baptism is an essential element within salvation is because baptism is not the what, but it is the when. Baptism is not the what of salvation, but it is the when of salvation. I want you to consider the implication of the following passages. Returning to that Acts chapter 2 passage. Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now let me ask you a question. At what point does Peter indicate that one receives the forgiveness of their sins? 
as well as the gift of the Holy Spirit. When do they receive those things? When he or she is baptized in the name of Jesus. Or think about Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. At what point does Paul indicate that one dies to sin and receives eternal life? It's when he or she is baptized into Christ. And then there's Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. At what point does Paul indicate that one is in Christ and puts on Christ? It's when he or she is baptized into Christ. Baptism is essential to salvation because it is, it is when one's sins are forgiven. When one receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. When one dies to sin, when one starts a new life, and when one becomes a child of God in Christ. One author summarized baptism's purpose well when he wrote this, Baptism is the time and place that God forgives and saves. See, when it comes to salvation, baptism is not the what, but the when. It's the moment when you receive God's saving grace. That's why baptism is essential to salvation. How is baptism to be administered? That's our next question. How is baptism to be administered? The administration of baptism varies across Christianity. Some do it by sprinkling water on the head of the person. Others do it by pouring water over the head of a person. But we do it solely by immersing the person fully in water. And the question is, does it really matter? Does it really matter how you are baptized? If you were to investigate the meaning of the Greek word that is translated baptize or baptism, you would find it defined with terms like to dip, immerse, or submerge. That's the literal meaning of this term. And it should be no surprise because the language of the New Testament concerning baptism only makes sense if it involves immersion. Let me show you what I mean. Mark chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 records Jesus' baptism. It says, In those days Jesus came down from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. As one author pointed out, it doesn't say Jesus was baptized beside the Jordan or at the Jordan or near the Jordan or with the water from the Jordan. It says he was baptized in the Jordan. Immersion is the only mode of baptism that would require one to go in the Jordan. Additionally, the description of Jesus coming out of the water, coming up out of the water, implies immersion because nobody comes up out of the water when they're sprinkled or when water is poured on them. So the description of Jesus' baptism implies immersion. We can go over to John chapter 3 and verse 23 as well, where we have this description of John. John's baptizing efforts. It says John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. If baptism is to be done by sprinkling or pouring or can be done by sprinkling or pouring, then you don't need plentiful water. 
The only mode of baptism that requires plenty of water is immersion. And then finally going to Acts chapter 8 and the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, his baptism. Look at what happened there in verse 38 and 39. He commanded the chariot to stop and they both, they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. They went down into the water, and they came up out of the water. Those things only happen when a person is immersed. And the point of all these verses is to show that the Bible speaks about baptism in a way that implies that it can only be administered by immersion. But again, does it really matter? We can cite all the examples we want that prove immersion was the mode of baptism in the Bible. But does it really matter? Does God care about the details of his instructions? That's really the question. Ask Nadab and Abihu, who were consumed by fire because they, they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Ask Moses, who hit a rock with his staff instead of speaking to it as God instructed. Ask David, who watched Uzzah die because David didn't find out how to transport an ark the correct way. Does God care about the details? Let me just say this. I don't want to find out that he did, and I didn't. When we think about Dadab and Abihu, or Moses, or David's examples, they don't specifically pertain to baptism, but they do indicate that God expects his people to respect the details of his instructions, and that includes his instructions regarding baptism. And who is baptism for? To answer this question, we first need to acknowledge that baptism does not secure salvation by itself. The Bible associates other actions that must accompany baptism in order for salvation to be received. And when we examine those other conditions for salvation, we can conclude that baptism is for whoever is able to confess their belief in Jesus. Belief is associated with salvation in numerous passages throughout the New Testament, but I think one will suffice. We've already referenced the Philippian jailer's conversion, so notice again what Paul and Silas said to him when he asked, what must I do to be saved? Their response recorded in Acts chapter 16 and verse 31 is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But the Bible doesn't just call on us to believe in order to receive salvation. It also calls on us to confess that belief. Look at what Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This passage indicates that salvation is contingent on a confessed belief that Jesus is our resurrected Lord. So whoever is able to confess their belief in Jesus, that's who baptism is for. And whoever is able to repent of their sins... Because repentance is also associated with salvation. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, we've already looked at it twice. You remember what the conditions were? What shall they do? Repent and be baptized. Repentance is joined to baptism. But what is repentance? 
Repentance is a multifaceted concept. It entails remorse and redirection. In other words, repentance occurs when you admit your guilt and orient your life in a new direction. In the context of salvation, that means you orient your life around the will of God. See, I like the way one author put it. He said, our full and final salvation answer begins with a confessed belief, continues with repentance, and is completed in baptism. In other words, if we are baptized, but we do not confess our belief that Jesus is the risen Son of God, and or we do not repent of our sins, then we really did nothing more than get wet. And here's the point. Since confession of one's belief that Jesus is the risen Son of God and a decision to stop sinning and commit your life to the will of God are prerequisites for baptism, certain individuals are precluded from being baptized. In particular, babies and small children are not expected to be baptized because they are unable to fulfill those, those requirements of repentance and confession. And this is supported by the fact that you can't find a single baby or small child being baptized in the New Testament. Not one example. And the point is that baptism is reserved for those who are able to believe and repent. And that necessitates some level of maturity. So we've addressed the why of baptism. We've addressed the what of baptism. The how and the who. That brings us to one final question, and that is, when is one to be baptized? To answer this question, let's return to some of those conversion accounts in the book of Acts. After Peter told the Jerusalem audience that they needed to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, we're told in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, those who received Paul's words were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In other words, 3,000 people didn't wait to be baptized. They were baptized the very day they learned that they needed to be. After the eunuch learned about Jesus from Philip and made the connection between baptism and salvation, we're told in Acts chapter 8 and verse 36 that he said, See, here, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then he commanded the chariot to stop. And they went down in the water, Philip and the eunuch together, and he baptized him. Just like those Pentecost converts, the eunuch didn't wait. Once again, we have someone who realized that he needed to be baptized, and he was baptized. Then there's the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. After the jailer learned that he needed what he needed to do to be saved, we're told in verse 33 that he and, and all his family, actually, were baptized at once. At once implies no hesitation. At once implies no delay. At, at once implies no waiting. Once again, we have an example of someone making an immediate decision. And then there's Paul 
who recounts his conversion in chapter 22 of Acts. And Paul indicates in verse 16 that after Ananias presented the gospel to him, Ananias said, Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Ananias encouraged Paul not to wait. And if you look back at chapter 9, verse 18, he didn't. All of these passages indicate that one should be baptized when they know that they need to be baptized. Those who heard Peter's sermon were baptized that day. The eunuch stopped the chariot to be baptized that moment. The Philippian jailer was baptized at once, and Paul did not wait to be baptized. You see, it comes down to this, as one preacher famously said. When you're ready, you're ready. And when it's time, it's time. So we're just going to cut to the chase. Are you ready to be baptized? Are you ready to have your sins washed away? Are you ready to be made clean? Then we invite you to come forward and make that decision right now. But maybe, maybe you're also out here and you're unsure about your salvation. And you don't know if you were baptized for the right reason or baptized correctly. Then we invite you to come and talk with one of our ministers, one of our shepherds. Let us discuss it with you. Because we don't want you to be unsure about your eternity. Or maybe today, you've already made the decision to be baptized. But you're failing to live for the will of God like you're supposed to. Maybe you need our help. Maybe you need our prayers. Maybe you need our encouragement. Maybe you need us to help you bear your burdens. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.